0: Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Out of Place. Not much to talk about this week, but a reminder, if you want to help support the show, the best way to do it is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are the best way to get our audience in front of more members, and we appreciate it a bunch. Also, a lot of you have been uh, messaging us on Twitter, uh, that is at Place underscore pod, and I gotta say we really appreciate the messages. Uh, I know I'm a little behind in answering all of them, but I promise I am going through them all, and they mean a lot to the team. And if you have thoughts or something you want to say to the team, or an episode that you loved, please let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Place underscore pod. There's also a link in the show notes below. But without further ado, here's a new episode for you.
2: the new experiences I might have expected while working for the project, bowling wasn't one of them. Rico, the guy from logistics, was horrified to learn I'd never been. He said it was like never having seen a baseball game, and I said I hadn't done that either. So he took me bowling. He's one of those people who makes friends just as a natural side effect of existing. There were a dozen of us there, most of whom I'd never met before, all laughing and drinking beer while throwing balls down the lanes and occasionally hitting the pins. I can report that I am not very good at bowling, but then actually playing the game isn't the reason one goes to a bowling alley. It's an excuse to hang around and talk. Shoot the shit, as Rico says. I learned a lot about his uncle, who once robbed a bank with a zucchini in a plastic bag, and nothing at all about hitting a strike. It's a distraction from the weirdness of the actual job, which Rico knows full well, of course. I wonder if he's a sort of unofficial wellness commissar for the whole office. Come to think of it, we could probably do with an official one. Once you get past the security checkpoint, we look like a normal bunch of white-collar wage slaves, but the actual work can burrow into us and refuse to go away. It's not just the existential questions about multiple realities and the meaning of it all. Sometimes it's old-fashioned blood and guts, honest human trauma. We don't see it firsthand here, but we get the reflection of it. We have to pare it apart and reduce it to numbers and recommendations. It's not the same as living it, but it has its own way of grinding away our shell and exposing the nerves. I've felt some of it. Passing descriptions of mass graves and the wounds of war or catastrophe. Hearing the recordings of the field team as they examine a corpse or realise an industrial facility is actually a giant crematorium. I haven't broached the subject with Director Beckman. I'd rather not be found lacking in moral fibre. I don't know what happens to people who can't hack working at the project, but I doubt they're just sent back into civilian life with a warning not to tell the world what we do. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a black site in some empty timeline where the project puts all its rogues and psychological casualties. I don't intend to find out for sure. So I knuckle down and do my job. Most of the time I can sleep. Sometimes I even manage to have fun at a bowling alley with a bunch of drunk Mexicans. Then I come back to the office and the next set of mission data crosses my desk. The Extant team has a standard procedure. Most of the time they stick to it. Firstly, they send orbital probes through the dimensional breaches to versions of Earth mostly similar to our own. They send detachable hard drives back through, because transmissions can't get through a breach, only physical objects. And the tech guys decode them to decide which one's Extant should visit. The world's where human civilization has ended, and it's not immediately obvious how. I go over this now because when I was looking through the probe data for this mission, it was like autopsying a corpse. I felt a flicker of what the away team must feel when they turn over a body to divine a cause of death from torn skin and muscle. When they kick over a clod of earth to find a field of bones underneath. It's not like being there, I know, but that doesn't make it easier to see. The orbital probes saw a world that had been chewed up and spat out. Most of North America and Asia was covered in craters and blast zones. A crevice ran in a jagged line from the Washington coast to Kamkatchka like a badly stitched wound. Africa and South America had a cracked and shattered look, shaken to pieces by a seismic devastation for which the word earthquake wasn't nearly sufficient. The sea levels had risen, eating away at the coastlines. A new, smouldering continent had risen in the southern Pacific, where some immense and destructive event had ripped the seabed open, and a vast upwelling of molten rock had vomited up into mountains of igneous scab. Masses of charred grey were all that remained of the cities that had burned, beneath the clouds of filthy smoke that covered half the globe. The Antarctic was a brown slurry of melted ice and ancient ground, uncovered by sudden, brutal climate change. Meanwhile, the Arctic had spread southwards to consume the ruins of Europe and Russia. The probe's readings indicated extreme weather and wild fluctuations in temperature and areas of massive radiation. Most of the planet wasn't survivable, but someone had survived. A repeating radio broadcast fired packets of data into space. It contained the coordinates for a location in Australia, one of the few major land masses not substantially destroyed by whatever string of catastrophes had befallen the Earth. It also contained a message in a dozen different languages and a set of pictograms encoded in the mathematics. The message was the same in all of them. We are all that is left. Please find us. Somebody has to know our story. The team was prepped with survival gear. They hate that, since there's barely enough room in the dimensional breach capsule to breathe, let alone shove in a set of NBC suits. The capsule exited the breach about nine kilometres away from the intended location, a spot in the middle of New South Wales. But this was no surprise given how much this version of Earth differed from the statistics of our own, which the tech guys used as the basis for their calculations. They were surprised they got as close as they did. The field team emerged into the outback. The sky was streaked red and black. The air was breathable, but heavy with ash and every type of air pollution, so they kept on their breathing gear. They scoped out a nearby town from a distance and saw it had been partially levelled, as if by a tornado. After reaching some higher ground, they were able to acquire the radio signal and confirm its direction. They weighed the time, cost, and risk of entering the town to look for transport, but Sergeant Brand elected to start walking. They found no other broadcasts over radio or any other form of communications. The orbital probes had found only the one broadcast, but some worlds can have less powerful local broadcasts that can only be picked up nearer the source on the surface. Not this world. Aside from that single plaintive beacon, the planet was silent. The weather worsened. Clouds as black as smoke gathered overhead. The team sought shelter in a service station beside the road they'd been using for navigation. The station was abandoned and, like the town they'd seen, showed signs of having been partially demolished by extreme weather. Some of that extreme weather hit them shortly after they got there. They estimated the winds hit somewhere well north of 100 miles per hour, and were accompanied by lashing rain heavy with chemicals that had bleached and corroded the exposed areas of the structure. Their toxin tags indicated heavy metal contamination and radiation levels more typical of a reactor accident on our world. The weather threatened to bring down the structure's walls. Private Sandish located a basement which would provide better cover from the elements. Private Quintero forced the basement doors open and shone his gun-mounted light inside. The basement was full of bodies. What had originally been a storage area for the station was crammed with approximately 30 corpses. They were in an advanced state of decay, but the positions in which they had died suggested they were themselves sheltering from something. Quintero had seen bodies killed by smoke asphyxiation during his military service and thought these bodies looked like they had died the same way. The team elected not to seek shelter in the basement. The storm was intense but short lived. After about 40 minutes, the winds abated enough for the team to continue. They scaled a low hill and saw the signal source was the ruins of a large industrial area, with a recently built radio antenna in the center. In the distance was a chain of new black basalt mountains formed by lava bursting up to the surface. The jagged peaks led down to huge rippling flows of cooled lava. Molten rock still oozed from crevices in the mountainsides and trickled down to the dusty plain of the outback. The ruins of a town were caught in the lower edge of the lava flows, with shattered buildings tilted over and tumbled as they'd been dragged along by the force of the lava. Warrant Officer Poulter suggested the site of the broadcast would soon be overwhelmed by the lava. They continued towards the industrial site, which they tentatively identified as a gas refinery, severely damaged by fire and explosion. As they crossed the threshold, they noted more bodies among the ruins.
0: Oh man, what happened here? fucking place blew up, dude. That guy didn't. Which one? Guy over there, by that wall. He's not burned. Must have been fighting over it afterwards. Oh, yeah. There's a bullet hole in his head. Guess the looting started, and then the shooting started. Sarge, this place is hostile. What do you see,
2: Private? That body's not decayed. Recent kill. Bullet wounds. Spread out! Get cover! Move! Sarge, I don't... Jesus! Heads down! Polter. get a drone up there! Where's it
0: coming from? Drones out! Where are these pricks? At least two shooters. One high, one low and close. Someone get me eyes on! We got too much cover here. They're gonna have to move to flank us. Okay, I I got one on the gas tank. Where? Uh, three o'clock. The big steel cylinder. Private, get your goddamn head down! Got one. You sure? Saw him fall, dude. One moving out of cover, 10 o'clock. See him? No. And we
2: got more than two shooters. It's a fire team. Fatigues and body armor. It looks like carbines, not just looters.
1: Okay, we're done here. We fall back. First to the gas tank. We got some vehicles on the road below the ridge. We'll use them for cover. Poulter, we clear?
0: Can't tell. Nothing coming from the tower.
1: Good enough. Cover and move. Go. Hey.
0: Sandich, Sandwich, is that body the guy you capped? Uh-huh. The shot. Hey, thanks.
2: Look at this guy. Leave him, Quintero. He, he looks like me. Private, cover us to the front. I mean, he looks exactly
0: like me. He, he's got my face. Whoa. Whoa, you're right. Sarge, this guy's Quint. You know the first guy? One with the hole in his head? He, uh... You kinda look like you, Saj. Doesn't matter shit until we get safe. Sorry, I see one. By the low wall, two or three. Suppress that target and move! Go! Go! The team
2: made it to the road and worked through the abandoned vehicles back towards the ridge. The enemy kept up fire but did not pursue them, evidently unwilling to leave the cover of the refinery. Brandt had the team use cover and movement techniques until well out of sight of the refinery, then moved in quick time back towards the location of the breach capsule. In protective gear and following the exertion of the firefight, the rapid movement was tiring, but for once the team did not complain. Their minds were probably on the possibility of armed hostiles still chasing them. They reached the capsule without further incident. Brandt called the mission as abandoned, and the team departed the timeline. They returned to the base timeline within 200 metres and 20 minutes of their expected return point, which was close on target in the circumstances. Extance procedures mandate a longer debriefing process when the team has made hostile contact. They were put through a more detailed psychological assessment and logged all the combat data they had with the tech team. My recommendations to the project board will have to wait for these extended briefing procedures to be completed. This is Director Beckman. Director? Uh, It's Andrew Moss. Extant analysis. Andrew,
1: it's been a while since we spoke. How are things at the office?
2: Uh, Fine. Um, I'm just finishing up the analysis on the last field team mission. Ah, Yes.
1: I understand there were some fireworks?
2: Yes, the team made hostile contact in the timeline.
1: It's bound to happen sometimes. That's why we use Army veterans... They took no casualties, I understand.
2: True, but that's not the reason I contacted you.
1: I see. Then what can I help you with, Andrew?
2: Parts of the recordings were redacted. Um, It was done subtly, but there were definitely parts missing. From during the firefight and then the return to the capsule location. Uh, Given the time it would take them to walk back to their entry point, there must be at least um, an hour and a half I didn't get. And this happened before, too, with the mission to the timeline with the evolved humans. If you
1: are calling me to complain you're not privy to every secret the project has, I'm afraid you're wasting your time and mine.
2: I don't like being asked to work with incomplete data director, but I'm not stupid. I realise information is going to be compartmentalised and I'm just an office drone.
1: So what, may I ask, is the problem?
2: It's not really a problem. I... I just think I know why this one was redacted, and if I'm right, it's better you and the project board know that I know, if you see what I mean.
1: I think I do. So what have you worked out,
2: Analyst Moss? I think the team brought back a body. At least one. The one that looked like Private Quintera, and probably the other one, the one that resembled Sergeant Brandt. The recording where they pick them up and then where they mention them as they carry them back to the departure point is what's missing. That's an interesting hypothesis. And then there's the timeline itself. The team goes there, finds the source of the only broadcast on the planet, and is ambushed by an equivalent force. If it wasn't for Quintera getting spooked and a good dose of luck, they would have been killed. The conclusion seems pretty obvious in hindsight. And the conclusion is? It was a trap.
1: A trap laid by whom?
2: By... by another timeline's project. Another version of... us. They found all their... they more likely created a world Extant couldn't resist investigating and used the broadcast to bring our field team into their kill zone. The reason their dead soldier looked like Quintero is because it was Quintero, a version of him from that other project's timeline. And the one they found dead, who looked like Brandt, was from a third Projects Field team they successfully ambushed before our guys got there.
1: How very complicated, Andrew. And reached with no little speculation on your part.
2: Director, everything we do is speculation. And if there really are an infinity of timelines out there, some of them would have had their own New Mexico event. Their own projects. Their own extant teams. And if I'm close with this direct, if there are other projects out there we might encounter, then I need to know. The extent has to be ready. You
1: are quite right, Andrew. This information is compartmentalized. Your data is redacted because some of it is dangerous. It can compromise our operations if the wrong people learn it. And it can simply be dangerous to know. Not everyone is psychologically suited to learning about the multiverse and all its implications.
2: And what about the other projects?
1: You're quite right about that, too. We always knew some of the closest timelines would have their own projects. It was unlikely we would encounter them directly, unless they came looking for us. But one of them did. That's what the Extant team established. Then why...? It's a lot of trouble to kill off versions of yourselves. We believe the intent was not to kill the whole team, but to take one or more of them captive, then interrogate them for intelligence on our project's activities.
2: If they're gathering intel on us, that sounds like they see us as the enemy.
1: It's another possibility we anticipated, but hoped we would never have to deal with. What we are doing, Andrew, what the project is trying to achieve is the single greatest work ever attempted. A utopian world where all the errors of history have been erased and humanity can reach its peak. Something like that is not easy to achieve. We are progressing with our goals. Not without obstacles, but constantly. We know how we are going to achieve them. We just have to iron out the practical hindrances. If there was a project out there that had the same motivations but came up against some problem they couldn't overcome, they would not simply give up. The end goal is too precious to abandon. They would seek another way to get what they wanted.
2: They'd steal it.
1: Either take our technological advances, or simply invade the perfected timeline once we've built it. Extant has a role in preventing that. You research ways our timeline could end. An enemy project is precisely that kind of threat. So, now I know. Now you know. Don't worry, Andrew. We're not going to have you lobotomized. There won't be an extraordinary rendition. If nothing else, we need
2: good people, and you're one of them. I'm not sure what to think. Everything I learned in this job just makes the universe more insane. Just when I think I've come to terms with the multiple dimensions, there's an evil version of us out there. Not evil desperate which is worse and of course they're out there
1: they have to be that's the nature of the universe i think meeting another version of me might break me funny you should mention that i've met one.
2: Oh, god
1: it's always intrigued me how alike you are but with such great differences if it's any consolation he's not doing quite as well as you I won't get into details, but
2: you should be very glad you stuck with your degree. Well, that's something else to put into the mix. The dropout version of me. We will
1: update your personnel file to show you're privy to the existence of hostile projects. Extant might well encounter them again, so it's only right that you be kept in the loop. I don't need to tell you how closely quarantined this information is. No, Director. And if you were to have other questions that desperately need answering, come to me. You are an inquisitive type, Andrew, when your heart's in it. But that is not always a strength in your position. Don't go sniffing around for the truth. There's a reason so few of us know it all. I understand. It's understanding too much that is your biggest risk. I can't tell you to stay ignorant. I can tell you to stay careful. Your recommendations to the board need not mention any of this. I will ensure they are apprised of the mission's hostile contact by other channels. I suggest you finish it up and submit it. Unless there's anything else?
2: No, Director, that's all.
1: Good night, Andrew. Uh. Good night.
0: Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Our sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara. I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew was Ben Counter. Carolyn was Aaron Evans Walker. Sandwich was Lexi Edwards. And Quintero was Luis Bermudez. For more information, visit MidnightDisease.net.